for today. Today's sermon is the last installment of our fun series entitled Meals with Jesus, Dining with Jesus. And as we have reminded ourselves throughout this series, it's not what you're eating with Jesus, it's who you're eating with. And so we're going to continue on with our last installment today. Today we're going to talk about a cookout that Jesus had on the beach. I think everyone loves a campfire. Even if you hate camping, I think you still love a fire. You have friends and, and um, people that you love that are circled around, stretch out your hands to, to feel the warmth and Sometimes, whatever you did during that day, you have the sting of sun, sunburnt cheeks as you stretch out towards the fire. There is the, the roasting of weenies on a stick and toasty marshmallows stuffed into graham crackers with melting candy bars in there. You tell scary stories and jokes and you tell tales of the one that got away. Oftentimes you hear a guitar strumming and you sing familiar songs and there's always laughter somewhere in the background. One of the favorite things that I like is you sit in a comfortable chair and you're, you have your feet propped up on the rocks that circle that fire. And then every once in a while you just crane your neck and you look up at a billion twinkling stars as you alternatingly gaze into the glowing embers of that fire. I think everyone loves a campfire. Would you agree? John chapter 21, starting in verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in a boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I don't know about you, but this is one of the beloved stories of the Gospels of frustrated fishermen and Jesus standing by a beach bonfire cooking breakfast for him. It's a story that's um, miraculously sensational and, and um, very emotional and very normal all at the same time. And many people question the accuracy of this text. I mean, there's some pretty sensational things in this text. And I wonder if it, people really think, did it really happen? Well, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, N.T. Wright says in that book that New Testament scholars and historians know that the post-resurrection gospel accounts of Jesus, they don't fit the standard form of myths and legends and made-up stories. They aren't myth and legend because they're eyewitness accounts is what we're reading here. Some quick examples to show you that it's really not a, a, a myth is, did you catch the number of fish that were there? Isn't that strange? 153. Why is it 153? If you were a fisherman, you wouldn't say about 150. If you were a fisherman, you'd say, what, about two or 300, right? I mean, that, <laughs> just about that much. 153 is not a biblical number. And if it's a myth, 153 must symbolize something because that's what myths do. They take something and make them symbolic, but it doesn't. So why is it 153? Because it's an eyewitness account. And that's why he writes 153. If you were also writing something as a legend and you were in a boat about a football field's distance from the shore and you see the Lord, and you want to get to him fast, and you jump out of the boat to swim a, yard's dis uh, a football field's distance to the shore, do you think you'd put on a coat? No. You would get in the boat, you'd say, I'm going to swim, and you'd take off your coat. Maybe you'd take off your shirt. Maybe you'd take off more so you can get to the shore and make sure you're going to make it. And so Peter puts on his coat here, and you never put on clothes to jump out of a boat to swim a football field's distance to shore. All of this really happened. And at the end of the Gospel of John, in just the following verses after 17, you, you, you read that John writes, he says, this is a true testimony of things that actually happened. He says, but I couldn't write everything down because if I did, they, there wouldn't be enough books to hold all the things that I would write down. And this really happened. But the question is, with all the things that happened that John had an eyewitness account to, why did he put this story in there? What is John trying to say to us? What's he trying to teach us in this passage? Well, I believe it's all about reconciliation. We're going to look at 
the focus of reconciliation. And, and really, there the three kinds or types of reconciliation that we find in this story. So let's take a look at lessons of reconciliation at a campfire meal. The first lesson is this in your notes is, number one, we can be reconciled to one another. We can be reconciled to one another. In verse 4, it says, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. Now, which disciples were they? You can look at verses 1 through 3 in John chapter 21 to find that there were seven of them named in that, in that boat. And in verse 5, Jesus calls out to him, Friends, haven't you any fish? And they said, We haven't caught anything. He says, Throw your net on the other side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the nets into the boat because there was such a large number of fish. Uh, I guess literally and metaphorically, they're all in the boat together, all seven here. But remember, remember how incredibly different all of them were. You take a look at one of the guys, Nathaniel, sometimes called Bartholomew in some of the other texts. You're going to read about him in John chapter 1, but Nathaniel was the one when Jesus first met him, and you read this, that he was under a fig tree, and Jesus, he thinks no one, no one knows that he's under this fig tree, but when Jesus encounters, encounters him, he says, I saw you under that fig tree, Nathaniel. If you know anything about Nathaniel, he's very superstitious. He's very superficial. He's so quick to believe. And when Jesus says, I saw you under that fig tree, Nathaniel says, well, you must be the king of Israel. He's so quick to believe. Nathaniel is so superstitious. He's in the same boat with a guy named Thomas, doubting Thomas. You find his account in his special account in um, the Gospel of John in chapter 21, where Thomas is opposite of Nathaniel, if you want to look at it that way. Thomas is, where Nathaniel is over-believing, Thomas is under-believing. He's hard, it's hard for him to believe. And ordinarily, Nathaniel's and Thomas's don't get along. But here we find them in the same boat together. Another pair that you can, you can pit up against each other is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is a logical rationalist. He's the first one while he's in that boat to look at the evidence and to crunch the data and say, that's Jesus on the shore. He's the first one to think, but he is the last one to act. And then you have Peter, an opposite of John. He's, a, he's not a thinker. He's a, he's a doer. He's an action taker. He's impetuous. He's, he's the first one to act. Peter doesn't want to have another meeting to analyze the data. He's, he hears what John says, and he just wants to move. And so normally you, don't, you have a John and you have a Peter, and they don't get along, but here we find them in the same boat together. And the Bible says in other scriptures with a stronger emphasis than this one that Jesus Christ brings people across divides, whether they be racial divides or socioeconomic divides or gender divides or class divides. He brings people of different ages all together, different cultural divides and different temperaments and personalities. He brings two different churches together to become one. And it's that kind of unity. It's not the campfire kumbaya kind of unity. It's much more than that. It's a unity that glorifies God and advances the kingdom. The Apostle Paul writes about this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. 
He writes in verse 14, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law and its requirements and regulations. And he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. And together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his, get this, his death on a cross. That's how you reconcile two different groups. And he ended this hostility towards each other. All that was put to death. There is a human unity. There is a human unity that Jesus Christ orchestrates and joins together. The great differences and divisions that gives honor to God and enriches one another. That's what we're experiencing here as we gather. Next week, we're going to welcome new members to our Nova Church family. And, and through that, we are saying we're co-equally together. And new members, as they stand in front of us and as we welcome them, I'm not better than them because I've been around longer, but we share in all of the same resources that Nova Church has, that God has given. And we share all of that equally together, but we also share the strong responsibility of the stewardship of the mission and ministry of this church. In our, in our, um, in our culture, in our South Bay, Southern California community, you often hear, and you hear it throughout the country, but you hear, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And those people are, I, I think those people are really saying, I believe in God, but I don't believe in his church. But if you don't, you can't be reconciled to one another. Unity, in spite of the differences, is only possible through something supernatural, what happened on the cross. And the church here is supernatural. And therefore, God tells us in his word, that we should be kind to one another and we should be patient. Be patient with one another. We should carry one another's burdens and be forgiving to one another and pray for one another and be devoted to one another and, and comfort and accept and love one another. The first type of reconciliation lesson we can learn through this text today is we can be reconciled to one another, one to another. The second is this. You can be reconciled to yourself. This is interesting. You can be reconciled not just to one another, but really before you have that, you must be reconciled to yourself. One of the reasons you don't always see people reconciling in the church as a reconciled, unified community is because people, the individuals, aren't reconciled to themselves. You aren't reconciled, and I'll call it this, I'll I'll call it reconciled to your own reality. It's the reality of who you are. I think James hits it on the head when he writes in chapter 4, in verse 1. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires at battle within you? He's saying, if you have a battle within you, how can you even deal with what's going on outside of you? Therefore, you must be reconciled to yourself first. If you can't be honest and transparent and authentic with yourself, how can you be transparent with others? Without God's help, we spend our entire lives hiding who we are to others. We, we, we can't admit 
our weaknesses and our flaws and our imperfections and our own depravity. And it's comical, isn't it? I mean, because we all know what we're like on the inside, and we're unwilling to admit this, but we know if, if you're anything like me or even half like me, you're as messed up as I am. But we end up our whole lives sort of hiding this to one another. And because we can't be transparent with ourselves, we can't be transparent with others. But Jesus can change all that. And here we read about the case study of a man named Peter. At the end of Jesus' life, all the disciples let Jesus down. But Peter's denial of Jesus was especially, and it was spectacularly grievous. Let's take a look at this in Matthew chapter 26. This is just before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, This very night you will fall away on account of me. And Peter replies, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus says, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples agreed. Now, there's some reasons why Peter's denial is especially grievous. The, the first reason would be that he was part of this inner circle of Jesus. I mean, he was closest to Jesus along with, with James and John. And so for him to deny Christ, it was especially grievous. The second reason was that Peter was the only one who was so out of touch that he said that if Jesus was to be taken, he would not fall away. And that's why it's especially, it's especially important for us to understand how, how grieved Peter was with all of this. The third reason would be that Peter says, I alone will be faithful to you. It's all these other guys may not or will not, but me, I'm, I, there's no way I'm going to do that. And we all know that Peter denied Jesus three times, very publicly and very loudly and very adamantly. So how do you live with yourself after that, really? I mean, how do you even deal with who you are after being so public about your faithfulness and yet denying Jesus three times. Why well, I, I love what Jesus does with Peter in our case study here in this text. Look what Jesus does in John chapter 21. In verse 9, what does Jesus do? He brings Peter back to the campfire where Jesus, where, where Peter denied him first. This is a reminder of the setting of the original betrayal through this. It's very subtle, but perhaps Peter remembers this. Look what else Jesus does. In verse 15, Jesus asks Peter, Do you truly love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, Peter, do you really love me? In Peter's words, Jesus sort of repeats, Do you love me more than these This is a reminder, not just of the setting, but it's a reminder of the content of the original betrayal. Then Peter, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me three times? And Peter denies Jesus how many times? Three times. And this is a reminder of the form of the original betrayal. It's, it's the setting, that campfire, the content, 
in the form of all of this. You see what Jesus is doing with Peter? He wants Peter to be reconciled to himself, to see himself for who he really is. And Jesus wants absolute psychological and emotional reality in Peter and in us. And he wants us to deal with, look at who you are. Look at you. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. And he wants us to be reconciled with ourselves. Now, people would look at this, some people, and say, is Jesus being mean? Isn't he being a a mean guy? I mean, doesn't he like stick the knife in Peter and not just stick it in there, but twist it a little bit? Yes. But he's doing it like a surgeon. He's cutting so finely in Peter. He wants us to be reconciled with our own reality, to see the truth about ourselves. Three types of reconciliation that that we can see in this text. The first is we need to be reconciled one to another. But you can only be reconciled one to another if you're first reconciled to yourself. And the third is this. It all begins with being reconciled to God. If you're reconciled to God, then you could be reconciled to yourself so that you can be reconciled to one another. But it all begins with a reconciliation to God. You see yourself for who you really are. And if you're honest with yourself, you can be transparent and naked before God. But if you're, I, I think if you do that, who would want to be in relationship with me if, I, if you saw me for who I really am? Have you ever thought that? Who would want to be in relationship with me if, if you know how deeply disturbed and imperfect and depraved I really am? God, would you want to have a relationship with me like that? This is the gospel. This is the good news. God says, take your failure and your imperfection and just plunge it into my grace and you'll be given another chance. Every time Jesus says, do you love me? Do do you love me? Every time Jesus says, do you love me? Peter is reminded of his failure. But what is Jesus' reply when Peter says, you know that I love you? Jesus says, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And here Jesus uses the verb for shepherd or for pastor or for leader. Do you love me, Peter? You know that I do, Jesus. Then shepherd the flock. Jesus says, if, I want you to see your brokenness and your imperfections and your failure. And the second Peter admits it, Jesus covers them with love and affirmation. Jesus says, you failed me. Peter says, I know. And Jesus says, now serve and lead others to me. It, it, it's an incredible. You, you would almost think that when Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I do. And all of that is given the idea that Peter denied and was unfaithful and betrayed Jesus. You would almost think that Jesus would say, okay, I'll accept you, but you sit on the end of the bench. You're not going to get in the game. You'll, you'll be on the team. You can put on the uniform, but I'm really not going to play you at all. Out of the seven disciples who were there, Peter was the one who needed the reconciliation the most. 
and he became the leader of them all. And this is so countercultural cultural for, for us. I mean, we live in this performance culture, don't we? From the time that we're children, we put hoops in front, and we say, jump through that hoop, and jump through it perfectly. And when you do, there'll be another hoop on the other side. And if you make a mistake, well, I'm not sure if there's going to be another chance for you. From athletic or artistic evaluations, or if you want to call them tryouts, that's what happens to us when we're young. In our careers, we have performance reviews that we have to perform in order to move forward. And if you're in sales, you've got to hit those quotas and those numbers, or else you're going nowhere. And when, if you're in high school and you're a senior, you know it's all about GPAs and SATs. And it's all about moving up this ladder of performance. And Jesus is not with me, though. The more you see your own brokenness and rely on God's grace, the more you will understand people. The more you see your own failure and understand God's grace, you're going to understand people, you'll understand how the human heart works, you'll be more reliant on God, you'll be humble, you'll be wiser. But this will only happen when you see yourself as a moral failure plunged into the grace of God. Take a look at what happened with Peter and the reconciliation that takes place. Just, just real quick, the first time Jesus encounters Simon Peter and calls him to be a disciple, Luke chapter 5, it, it, Jesus encounters Peter. Check out the setting of this is familiar. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said this, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Get away from me, Jesus. And This is an example of a Simon Peter, what he was like before he was reconciled to God. Before you're reconciled to God, you don't want to, it's like, Jesus, get get away from me. You're shining too much light on the sin of my life. I don't like to see my inadequacies and my failure and flaws. Get away from me, Jesus. My whole self-image is based on being a good person and being a cool person and being an awesome person. And when I encounter you, Jesus, you, you show me that I'm not that. And when I encounter Jesus, he sees me for who I really am and he sees right through me. And when he does that, I don't really like me. I, I can't be reconciled to myself. But it's different in John chapter 21, right? When, when the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he looks over at the shore and says, it's the Lord. What, is, what does Peter do? He doesn't say, get away from me, Lord. What does he do? He puts on his coat and he, he, can't, wait to get to, he can't wait for the boat to get there. He jumps out of the boat to go to Jesus. Now what's the change here? Because through Jesus' death on the cross, Peter was reconciled to God. And if you're a sinner saved by grace, sin does not mean certain failure to you. It is a means to personal and spiritual growth. So, what does all of this mean 
for the average Novaite. What does this mean for us? Well, the first is this. I encourage you to patiently and compassionately and lovingly embrace the differences that we have here. The differences in one another. I encourage you and I admonish you to be careful with your words about one another. It's easy to talk negative about someone, even in sort of the positive way. Some of you, and I am at times a master at it. Be careful. Compassionately, lovingly, patiently care for one another here. Be reconciled one to another. The second thing I would have for you is to be honest to God. And to be honest to others about your reality. This is risky business, to find a trusted friend or friends to confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. The third thing I would say to you, the last thing, is if you haven't already, be reconciled to God. The good news is our holy God knows us. He knows all of our imperfections, all of our flaws, all of our moral failures, all all of our character defects. And you know, he still wants to have a relationship with you. And so he sent his son Jesus to take all of your imperfection, all of your sin on himself and he died on the cross so that you can be reconciled to God. So today, if you haven't yet been reconciled to God, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Dear Father, how thankful we are for your word this morning. How thankful we are that you're a God that we could plunge all of our sin and all of our imperfection, all of our flaws into your grace. Thank you, Father, that we can be reconciled one to another by what Jesus did on the cross that we could be a church and look at ourselves as a supernatural church. Father, thank you that we can be reconciled to ourselves, that we're not fooling anybody by putting on airs and wanting to be what we're really not on the inside. And thank you, God, that we can be reconciled to you because you know us through and through. And thank you that you still want to have a relationship with us. We give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.